The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Well, hello, everybody. You are joining us today live, I hope. We are I'm just beside myself with excitement. We're going to talk to a woman who just blows me away with her inner peace and her wisdom. Her name is Diane Musho Hamilton, and you are going to love listening to what she has to share. But first, I wanted to share with you that I'm just back from a trip out to Arizona where I was with a group of parents from Helping Parents Heal. And I don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about this, but I was given the honor of bringing through a group of children, not all children, some grown adults, but their parents were in the room and I got a chance to talk to 14 different kids from the other side, bringing them through with evidence and messages. And it was a life-changing experience for me to, to, to interact with so many spirits on the other side for a two-hour period with these parents present, and I'm still trying to process all of it. The awe and the gratitude that I feel, the evidence they showed was overwhelming that all these kids are together on the other side. And it's it's something that I knew, but to experience it firsthand was just mind-boggling. So more about that later. But uh, also just one other thing I wanted to mention that on my flight back and all this morning, I've been refining the information that I'm going to be sharing at my Holy You retreat at Unity Village this April 11th to 14th. And I just feel like like shouting out to the world, you need to join me because it's just so amazing the information that Spirit is giving me and the clever and creative way they're giving it to be shared. And I just wish I could share it with everybody. I hope you can join me. Information about that's on my website under events, the Holy You Retreat, all about celebrating our wholeness, our our dual nature as both human and a beautiful soul. So let me calm down, take a breath. <laughs> I don't want to come totally back down to earth because we're going to be talking about very lofty subjects today with Diane Musho Hamilton. Diane's an award-winning mediator, but also a meditator. She's a uniquely gifted, playful, and awake group facilitator, consultant, and teacher of integral spirituality and Zen. She is a lineage holder in the Soto Zen tradition, 
and has collaborated with the Integral Institute and Ken Wilber since 2004. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Ken Wilber's work. Some of his earlier books were pretty hard to understand. I finally found some that I could understand. And oh, he is just uh, an amazing uh, teacher of philosophy and cosmic consciousness. And Diane is, is one of his uh, facilitators of his work. Diane has studied and practiced Buddha Dharma for over 25 years. And we're going to ask her what that's all about. But get this. She was ordained as a Zen priest in 2003 and received Dharma transmission from her teacher in 2006. And I want to ask her what that's about, too. With her husband, who is also a Zen teacher, Michael Zimmerman, she established Two Arrows Zen, a center for the study and practice of Zen. And they have two facilities. One is in downtown Salt Lake City, where I had dinner with Diane just two weeks ago, and at a rural retreat center in the Red Rocks of southern Utah. I hope to go there and and, uh, experience that with her. But Diane encourages us to consciously evolve beyond old and limited ideas of who we are so that we might discover our own unique expression of wisdom and compassion. That is my word of the month, compassion. And I can't think of a better person to teach it to all of us. She's the author of an amazing book called Everything is Workable. I read it from, from front to back just recently, and I hope we get to talk about that a lot today. But enough of me talking. Let's bring in Diane. Welcome to the show. Suzanne, I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me today. You are welcome. Would you explain to me your middle name, if it's not a middle name or last name, Musho? I know it has something to do with your Zen work. Well, I know that when you were a commander in the Navy that you spent uh, two or three years in Japan and that you actually speak a little bit of Japanese. So this is a name that I was given in my uh, Zen ordination, and it means basically no conflict. Oh, wow. What a perfect name for a mediator. I know, right? <laughs> now, did, did your the people who bestowed that name upon you know that you were a mediator? Well, they know that I'm a mediator, and they also know that I'm a bit of a fighting spirit. So they gave it to me to just help help me calm down. <laughs> they gave it to <laughs> and, me because I'm a mediator. And I'm also curious now, you've intrigued me, your husband, Michael Zimmerman, his middle name, Mugaku. What does that mean? That means mu is 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 like no, um, um, and it means no learning, because he's a bookworm and a scholar and a just you know like a power reader, and so the idea for him was to kind of move out of his book learning and more into his felt experience. I think. Okay, fascinating. Yeah. So you yeah. studied and practiced Buddha Dharma for over 25 mm-hmm. years. Would you tell us what that is? Yes, I sure will. I mean, I I was a student of philosophy, and also I studied English literature. And I, but at the same time, this was when I was in college in my early 20s. And even though I really loved it and enjoyed it, there was some part of me that just wasn't entirely satisfied. And I think the way that I would explain it now is that somehow the gap between me and what I was studying didn't close. And somehow through the practice of meditation, I started to learn how to kind of close that gap. And then I started the formal study of uh, meditation, and I did it within the Buddhist tradition. So 
people might say study to study Buddhism, but when you say Buddha Dharma, what you mean is you're studying um, the the kind of the exemplars of Buddhism and also the 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 teachings. So Buddha Dharma is just a little more accurate word than studying Buddhism. I've been a student of Buddhism since I was in my early 20s, and I'm 60 now. Okay. All right. And what does it mean that you received Dharma transmission from your teacher? Well, the way, you know, all spiritual, I mean, it's interesting, different, the way different spiritual traditions evolve and are maintained. And in your case, I know that you moved from being, you know, in a highly secular environment in, in, in the military and really just taking care of very concrete things and that through a series of events in your life that this other dimension of you opened up and so you sort of spontaneously began to kind of grow into a different way of seeing and experiencing the world and for me this uh to become a zen teacher it's passed literally from teacher to student um through we say down through 82 generations since the historical Sakyamuni Buddha lived in India and taught meditation in India. So transmission means that basically you've been empowered by your teacher to teach. So I'm officially a teacher in the Soto School of Zen. Does that make Wonder. sense? Yeah, that's great. So I I knew that you would be a good fit for the show because meditation is so key to connecting with the greater reality, understanding there's more to us than simply our human awareness. Would you, before we get into the main topic, and I haven't even introduced what that is, would you just okay. share with me how meditation has affected you or changed you or shown you there's more than just the, the part of you that we know as Diane Hamilton? Absolutely. So, um, Lots of people these days come to meditation because they're experiencing a lot of stress. And so the first layer of meditation when you sit down on a cushion is simply to quiet the mind, to turn down language and thinking and memory and futurizing and just to learn to get still and quiet. And what we find when we quiet the mind and we become still is that a different part of our brain takes over from the languaging of the prefrontal cortex and this thinking to what they call the experiencing network. And usually when that happens and people open the experiencing network, they almost immediately feel more relaxed, more at peace, and like the problems or challenges in their lives are actually handleable or in the title of my book, workable. Um, it's also really important for to increase the powers of concentration because the more that you meditate, the more you sort of see when you're engaged in doing other things that your ability to stay focused is enhanced. But maybe, as you were saying, the most important thing is that the deeper we go, the more we start to see very clearly that our limited self-identity or our egoic identity or this this human preoccupation that we have is not the greatest reality and that we actually are a part of of everything and we're mm -hmm. completely um, at home in that regard so there's actually a shift in identity from um, you know Diane and how I think about or how she thinks about herself Diane 
and to this quality which we call enlightenment, which is defined in some ways as intimacy with all things, that we're intimate with all things in creation, and that there's no other place that we belong except right here. And that changes everything, doesn't it? It does. It changes everything. Because we start to listen to our our uh, selves in a much more intuitive way. We start to make sense of kind of meaningfulness in a different way. Usually, for those of us who've engaged in meditation, like you and I have, our, our entire life changes. My, my father wanted me to become a lawyer. And somehow through meditation, I became a mediator instead and married a lawyer. So... <laughs> I hope your dad was happy with that choice. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty happy. <laughs> oh, so. I, I just want to comment that um, Diane was a guest in my class. I taught my Serving Spirit class in Salt Lake City two weeks ago. And I found it interesting that as I was sharing information, she sitting in the group of students was sitting there several times I noticed Diane, you had your eyes closed and a gentle smile on your face. I knew you weren't sleeping, <laughs> but uh, I, I asked you why you did that. I had an intuitive knowing, but I found your answer very illuminating, and I thought that the listeners might enjoy that. Why would you sit in a class with your eyes closed? Well, there, you know, as you know, part of what happens when someone studies with you or experiences your your methods for helping people connect to the soul, that there's a, a lot of information. And so when I was sitting in your class closing my eyes, I was literally dialing down the amount of information that I was getting so that I was simply feeling and listening. So I wasn't distracted by what I was, mainly what I was seeing visually and the light and all of that. And it just helped me maybe sink a little bit deeper and really receive and hear what you were having to say and not be distracted by my visual field. So I think it was to enhance listening and also feeling because you had talked about how important feeling is. So I wanted to feel more when I was there too. I love that. Thinking outside the box. I'm I'm laughing because I taught at the Naval Academy when I was an officer and if any of the midshipmen had tried that excuse on me, well, I'm just trying to feel into the information, Commander. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would yeah. have bought it. <laughs> that would have been hilarious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's get very, to the... There's very different ways of knowing. You know, they're just very different ways of knowing, and we just need to know when to apply the right technique for knowing, I guess. And... As you say, knowing, I've been getting so much information lately from my my guides about the difference between thinking and knowing, and I'd love to hear your take on that. Yes, well, one one way to think about it is that as, as modern human beings, I mean, obviously we've been evolving for eons, but but modern human beings as we know them came into to existence about 200,000 years ago and that we're that we have basically three brains we have this very old reptilian brain which basically all it does is test whether there's threat in the atmosphere in the environment and whether or not we can get sustenance or food and then we have our mammalian brain which is more complex for sure and the mammalian brain is exists in all mammals and basically it, it really has a lot to do with maintaining connection maintaining bonds, reading signals in people like us and others. And also that's where the, our emotions are centered is in the mammalian brain. 
then the prefrontal cortex is the last part of the brain to come online. And that's where these things like mathematics and music and thinking and language and all of this, these sort of later attributes of our brain come online. And they're, they're marvelous and they're amazing. And without, without engaging the entire body, sometimes our thinking can actually not give us enough information. So uh, thinking is really great when we're doing a math problem or when we're figuring out a strategy or you're trying to figure out this touring schedule that you're on now and how to get from place to place. But when we're trying to live the greater questions of our lives, we want to actually use all of our felt experience, all of our senses, all of our uh, deep intuitive knowing, which is much, much, much older and also... um, picks up on, as you know, picks up on things that the thinking mind can't always make sense of. And so sometimes it's said that thinking is a tremendous tool, but it's a terrible master, and that the master uh, really needs to include the wholeness of who we are and not simply our logic and rational mind. So how does that sound? I love that. Wow. So we are listening and sharing with Diane Musho-Hamilton, a Zen teacher, author of Everything is Workable. And her website is dianemushohamilton.com. That's M-U-S-H-O in the middle there. Let's get to the topic now that I told people you would be talking about. I'm just so fascinated I could talk to you for hours. But we uh, promised listeners you would talk about the important distinction between Waking up spiritually, awakening as spiritual devotees would understand it, and growing up as it regards to our emotional and relational development. So this is fascinating. Take it away. So waking up and growing up is a distinction that has been made by Ken Wilber, who is, as you know, just a a kind of a, a genius of a spiritual nature. He was, he was both a, a doctor, he was being trained as a doctor, and he also is a mystic, really. And so he, his whole life has been about how do we include all these different ways of knowing. And one of the distinctions he thinks that we need to make, those of us who are engaged in spiritual work, is the distinction between growing up and waking up. And waking up refers to what you and I already talked about, which is this shift from... Uh, an egoic identity or an individual identity um, into this greater awareness of the spiritual nature of who we are. One of the things I hear you say a lot is that we have this dualistic nature, that we're both very human with a personality and a history and stories, and then there's this deeper part of us that is the soul, and part of the work that you do is to help people connect to the soul. So that's really a process of waking up. But one of the great disappointments that um, we often find in people who've been studying and practicing spirituality for a long time is that they're disappointed that they're, oh, let's say that somehow this waking up doesn't translate very well to their relationships, or it somehow hasn't made as big a difference in their work life as they had hoped it would, or that the communities that they're practicing in are are wonderful to be with, but when there's a challenge or a conflict, people actually don't respond very well. 
and that there's a kind of ongoing sense of, you know, somehow this this deep practice and this deep recognition should really make a difference. Well, Ken says the reason we have this experience is because waking up does not always translate to growing up. So we can have a completely powerful spiritual experience and still interpret the world through kind of, um, what to say, maybe less mature ways. So an, an analogy might be this. You could have, you know, having practiced and engaged in prayer and meditation, one could be very certain about their place in reality and also deeply faithful in their true nature. But if they developed a cavity, they would still need to go to a dentist to have it filled. And this is true in our emotional and relational lives as well. Having a foundation in spiritual practice and in meditation is extremely supportive because we learn how to witness ourselves. We learn how to watch our thoughts. We learn how to experience feeling more fully. We can practice our listening skills. But if we don't make the link, if we don't make the link from meditation to our relationships and actually pick up the skill set that's needed in that domain, we will continue to feel somewhat frustrated and not as satisfied as we could because to grow up requires developing our skills, whereas to wake up requires opening to our true nature. Does that make sense? It does, but I feel like we could use some examples of some is are you saying that it's some people are spiritually awakened but emotionally not as developed? And what Precisely. would that look like? Well, a good example right now might be what's happening in the Catholic Church. And I think a lot of people who are Catholics are undergoing a tremendous amount of disappointment, injury, um, delay, you know, kind of anger at what they feel like has been been injustice in terms of, you know, the sexual abuse that has occurred in the institution of the church and which is only now really being recognized and dealt with in any kind of real and comprehensive way. So it remained in shadow for a long time. So what happens is this whole phenomenon just casts doubt on, on the spiritual authenticity of the church itself. But according to this idea, people can be spiritually awake and be wounded in their sexuality or be immature in um, understanding how to communicate love and erotic desire or can have a history of, let's say, sexual abuse that they endured as a child and be acting that out in the present. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they haven't evolved spiritually. They're actually two different things. So people don't necessarily need to lose faith in the heart of the church, but they do need to demand that people address these abuses, that they address what led to them, and that they mature and grow up in relationship to sexuality and to the expression of erotic desire. So that would be an example. Wow. Okay. So for... What's that? What do you think about that? I think it makes it makes perfect sense because so many people with the example you gave might say, well, how could they be a spiritual person and do such things? Precisely. That's precisely what it is that Ken is trying to address. So he's saying, you know, that, that kind of the way in which we actually manifest our lives 
even though we may have deep spiritual insight, can sometimes be either perverted, immature, or simply not developed, simply not skilled. So how do we improve on either side of those? Or do, do we just, is it a matter of becoming aware of where we are in our spiritual awakening and then our emotional development? Yes, exactly. That's exactly the case. So in a way, you know, there's, there was some work done by in the 80s, and I believe he was at Harvard. I'm not entirely sure, but his name was How- Howard Gardner. And he started the very first um, descriptions of multiple intelligences. So it used to be when you and I were young and that, that IQ was the only thing. It was just what people's intellectual intelligence was. And then he started to see that actually people had um, all kinds of different intelligences. They had uh, musical intelligence. They had kinesthetic or athletic intelligence. They had um, aesthetic or artistic intelligence. And so this idea of multiple intelligences started to expand. And what people have since discovered is that you can have naturally highly evolved spiritual intelligence but not be very evolved emotionally. Or you can have, this is a case maybe related to the church that we just talked about, or you can have deep spiritual insight and be morally or ethically not very developed. So the point that you just made, which is that we need to kind of assess, you know, where have we really gained traction in our lives and where are the places that are causing us suffering? Um, Is it within the emotional domain? Do we need to work on our communication skills? Are we still not able to talk about a topic that causes pain in our relationships or in our family because we haven't learned how to listen when we're filled with anxiety or fear that something's going to go wrong and to understand that your spiritual practice will not necessarily take care of that and that deepen your practice because it gives you stability, because it creates awareness, because it opens you to greater possibilities, but then really practice those skills that will help you, particularly in the emotional relational domain. There's been a study at Harvard that was done over the last couple of years or came to conclusion. It was a 75 longitudinal year longitudinal study on the, on the happiness, men's happiness. And basically they came to the conclusion that what, deter, what, the, what correlates to men's happiness most uh, profoundly is their emotional and relational development meaning that if they can communicate, if they can name emotion, if they can speak to it, if they can, um, that they have better relationships, and when they have better relationships, they're happier, and also they tend to contribute more to their communities. So it's really important for us to develop the skills and to grow up in the area of our emotions and our communications. All right. Well, we're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, hopefully you can share with us how to do some of that. Sound good? I would love to. Yeah. All right. So everybody come back. Join us with Diane Hamilton. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. 
If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, we hope you will give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the support of listeners like you to continue operating and expand its outreach. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today. Here's a Unity Teachable Moment with Rev. Wendy Craig Purcell, taken from a talk called The Plan Unfolds. I know in those times in my life where the changes have been hard and difficult and painful, that one of the things that has helped me to deal with them is to realize, oh my gosh, this is not just ultimately for my own growth and my own benefit, but it's going to help me in some way to be a benefit of other people. And so very important to this idea of true new beginnings is that it usually begins not with something that we've changed out here and have said we want this to be the new beginning, but we're beginning to feel something moving or healing or changing inside of ourselves. To find a Unity Church near you, visit unity.org. Know Yourself as Divine, Stations of the Cosmic Christ. A new book from Matthew Fox and Bishop Mark Andrus introduce a spiritual practice designed to help you realize the divine within. Combining prayer and an interpretation of the Stations of the Cross, featuring beautiful imagery, you will be led on a process of transformation. This book will help you discover the most caring, courageous, and compassionate parts of yourself. Get your copy today at Amazon.com or Unity.org shop. Did you know you can reach Unity's 24-7 prayer ministry online? You don't even have to give your name to know the prayers have begun for you or those you love. Someone has been praying around the clock at Silent Unity since 1890, and every request is taken into prayer for 30 days. Why not let us pray with you, too? To submit your prayer request to Silent Unity online, go to unity.org and click on prayer or call 816-969-2000. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore and other legendary Unity teachers with Rev. Bob Brock and Unity Classic Radio. Every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Central, Bob shares original radio transcripts from the Unity archives with truth students worldwide. Explore these timeless teachings and learn how to apply them to your life today. Listen live or on demand. You can also connect with Rev. Bob on his Unity in Action Facebook page. Tune in every Tuesday here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Yes, indeed. And we're talking with our special guest today, Diane Musho Hamilton. She's in Salt Lake City. She's the most wonderful woman. When I met her, we met at a conference in Salt Lake City about a year ago, and we met at a party for the speakers the night before. And you know how sometimes you just resonate with someone right away. Diane, you you just radiate the most peaceful, loving vibration it was just magnetic so thank you for joining us today we had a very special connection didn't we 
Yeah, yeah, immediate. And so it was a pleasure to, to get together and ha- and spend some time with you just a couple of weeks ago. And now everybody gets to hear you. So we're talking today about the difference between waking up spiritually and growing up emotionally and relationship-wise. So I just really enjoyed reading your book, Everything is Workable. Why don't we start with where that title comes from? Yes, that title comes from um, uh, a teacher of mine, and it's a it's a quote that, for ever, whatever reason, had a lot of meaning to me. But basically, he said, "Whatever occurs in the confused mind is regarded as the past. Everything is workable." So he's sort of his kind of way of talking about being fearless in relationship to things that come up that are frightening to us that we don't know how to handle or we haven't experienced before and just kind of giving people the confidence that whatever challenges we face in life are right exactly where we should be and to uh, trust, as you were saying earlier, to trust in spirit and to, um, yeah, to inhabit whatever those are, whatever those challenges are. Okay. And you told us in the first half that your your given name, I don't know how you refer to it, your Zen name is Musho, and it means no conflict. And Correct. that used yeah. that used to be my motto. I can't stand conflict. And ask Ty, I will walk away from it. I'm, I, I just, I can't handle it. And I'm getting so much better at it now because I'm working Good. on it. And your book is a, is a, is a turning point, uh, represents a turning point for me because points you make in it about conflict are just so beautiful. Uh, I love that you start out by saying no perspective is 100% true or completely false. Every perspective is true and partial. And as we grow in consciousness, we can inhabit more and more perspectives. You, what does that what does that raise in your mind to talk about right now? Well, um so you know, every time, if if I ask your listeners to kind of think about any time in their life where they've grown or they've changed, chances are they've started to include new and additional perspectives. So let's take your situation, for instance, when, you know, when after you lost your stepdaughter and you started to open up to other ways of making contact and opening to spirit and suddenly, you know, you're, you started to trust your thoughts in a different way. You started to notice synchronicities or or evidence of connection with other people and those are basically new perspectives so we literally in the process of growing and expanding new and uh, varied perspectives start to come online that weren't there before and one of the things that happens when people are in conflict is that there's a tendency when our fight-or-flight system is aroused because it's a very old ancient intelligence defense system and it's really priming us to act is that it reduces all of our inputs down to one action and so when we're in a state of fight or flight and we're experiencing defensiveness usually we lose our ability to hold multiple perspectives we actually collapse into one we have a tendency to sort of get pretty righteous about what we think we'll often defend one point of view And an hour or two later, when we're not feeling so threatened, suddenly we can hear a perspective in a way that we couldn't in the moment when we were threatened by it. 
So it's just uh, important to notice as we grow and change how there's literally more space in our awareness for seeing things in new and different ways. So that awareness is key, isn't it? Just noticing, uh uh-oh, there's that fight or flight, but I know there's a there are other ways of looking at this. Yes, exactly. And then pretty soon, when you get used to paying attention to your own fight or flight system, how it feels in your body, whether you tremble or your solar plexus quake or you have a sensation of nausea or your jaw is clenched or whatever it is, that's your particular experience of adrenaline and cortisol in the body. And you literally can start to watch those sensations. You can breathe a little bit. You can remind yourself, you know, this is going to pass. I know I'm feeling threatened. And pretty soon over time, we get much, much better at dealing with conflict because we're not simply reacting to it the way we did before. Yeah, and I I heard a very true point that, those chemicals that course through our body, when we say this too shall pass, it takes about 90 seconds for them to pass. So if we can be patient and breathe, they will yes. dissolve and, and metabolize and we can make more rational responses after that, right? Yes, exactly. But if we start having negative thoughts or fearful thoughts, they'll start again really quickly. So we really have to pay attention to the relaxing the body and quieting the mind. If we don't quiet the mind, the brain will keep producing those chemicals. And that's where the meditation practice comes in. Precisely. Exactly. So here's something that comes up for a lot of people. They, they, be, they become spiritually awakened and they feel the peace and the love. And mm-hmm. how do they then, how do we handle perspectives that are clearly out of alignment with our view of what is right or wrong for anybody. I mean, even if you're not at all spiritually awakened, we all have views of what is right and what is wrong. How do we handle when things are out of alignment? Yes, precisely. Well, the first thing is to simply notice and, um, yeah, to notice that we're out of alignment or to notice that there's tension in a conversation, maybe to notice that suddenly people aren't listening to each other very well, that all of a sudden we're arguing for one way of seeing or another. And I've always found that um, the best course of action, let's imagine for a moment that you're in a political discussion with one of your family members and you have really different views about, you know, what's true. Let's take the immigration dispute and whether it's a crisis or it isn't a crisis, whether we should have really strong borders or a more liberal immigration policy, you know, and all of a sudden you can feel that kind of tension set in and you, and, you know, the point you're making, Suzanne, is that we, we do have our perspectives and we do have our views. And some of those views correlate to our, our own moral codes. And so it's like it's not like we can give up a perspective because, you know, it we believe it to be true and to be right, as you were saying. But I've always found that if I can calm myself first and then if I can listen to the perspective of the other, take in what they're wants and needs really are, you know, strong borders, you know, maintaining national identity or, you know, maintaining culture, making sure that there's economic prosperity for everyone. You know, if I can just kind of hear what the deeper motivations are and reflect those and join with those, and then as soon as I've done that, then then I'm in a position to ask whoever it is I'm speaking to, and are you willing to consider these things. And then usually in the form of a question, 
Um, you find that when people have been listened to and when they feel respected and then things are posed in a question as opposed to an accusation, that people, it's amazing how quickly people will respond positively. So even though, you know, politically I'm quite different than some members of my family, you know, I found that, that since the last election I've been able to sit at the kitchen table and have conversations with them about our differences and and come away feeling closer and more aligned, even though we don't see, we don't have the same outcomes in mind in terms of our politics. And that's really important because our politics shouldn't interfere with our relationships fundamentally, in my view. And if they do, then we're not, we're not practicing enough. And for, that was just amazing. We need you on national television to educate all of us so we can get along better. Uh, we're yeah. talking with Diane Hamilton. She is a Zen Absolutely. teacher, a meditation teacher, but also a professional mediator in the court mm-hmm. system. And reading your book, Everything is Workable, I just had an eye-opening moment when I was reading the example you gave about a couple that came in. Do you, If you would share it with us, it was about the couple that wanted to send their son to different schools and how you solved that. Yes, yes. Basically, um, uh, I, you, you might have to help me refresh the details because it's been a while since I've thought about it. But basically what happened is lots of times people will come to a mediation session and they've already arrived at an outcome and they've decided that this is my position and this is what I want. And unfortunately, the other side wants just the opposite. So basically what happened is two, a couple came in. They had been divorced for a number of years. Their child was just about to leave junior high and go into high school, and they had two really different sets of values, and they had really come into conflict, and they weren't able to settle it. So as I recall, the mother really appreciated the the school that the child was in. It was small. He got a lot of individual attention. He was well-known. The teachers, uh, they did creative things. I think it was a kind of a, a more creative school, if I recall. And then, um, but the father really felt like it was time for him to be challenged more. His basic sense was that the school was too small, that uh, he wanted this son to um, be in a bigger situation, to, to maybe do more athletics. I can't remember exactly the fine detail, but basically what I did is I listened to both of them quite thoroughly, and then I listed their values. Um, one at a time and the things that they cared about. And then I asked them to try to think about a school that would actually capture both of them in which their son could be challenged properly. He could actually start to, you know, grow up a little bit in terms of being in high school, but at the same time, he wouldn't lose that individual attention. And what was interesting is that they Both of them came back having dropped the school that they wanted the child to go to and came up with a couple of other suggestions, and they were able to agree on a school that met both of their criteria. So that was a really satisfying mediation for me to do because it was kind of a, you know, we talk about a win-win. It was definitely a win-win. It was the the compromise aspect that most people forget about and I just yes. thought it was fascinating. You know, it, it, it would have been win-lose or for one of them, and instead everybody was happy. So yeah. let's move on for a second here. I loved how you make a clear distinguish, distinction when people are in conflict between acknowledging the existence of a perspective 
and agreeing with or condoning it. Would you talk about that? Because it's so important at this time when people are, you know, split right down the middle in our country. Well, lots of times we just make a, a, an error. And um, the error that we make is that when we're um, discussing an issue or we're experiencing a conflict with a spouse, that we have a tendency to confuse hearing or listening with agreement. And, you know, interestingly enough, Suzanne, one of the ways that we started to learn about this actually had to do with uh, the 1980s when the United States was was doing a lot of trade with Japanese businesses, because that's something that the Japanese don't do. They don't confuse listening and agreement. So lots of times, and you probably know this from having lived in Japan, when you say something, people will um, nod. They say yes to everything. Everything. They say yes to everything. (laughs) Because they're not agreeing, they're simply acknowledging your request or they're acknowledging your perspective. But here in the States, we confuse that all the time. And so I, I, we have the problem that if I, you know, if I listen to my husband, he'll think I'm agreeing. And I can't have that happen, so I won't listen to him. So I really try <laughs> to help people say, wait a minute, try and just listen to his point of view. You know, notice what it is you're hearing. And then you can say later whether you agree or not and what are the ways you do agree or the ways that you don't agree. But listening and hearing it isn't the same. And it's really important to to tease those two apart. And and if I could share a point from your book, Everything is Workable, you wrote, all viewpoints are valid because they exist. This doesn't mean we agree, but each person being the source in expression, I love that. And we're talking about mm-hmm. the big source. The big is source. Enti- the big source with a big S. This doesn't mean we agree, but each person being the source and expression is entitled to the dignity of their perspective. This offers respect to each soul. Yes, absolutely. You and I agree about that. I think that every person is a unique expression of source and everybody deserves their perspective. And we also are able to disagree about them, but we should create space at least for them to be respected and heard. And that creating space for me is what med- that's what meditation has done for me. That our brain wants to jump in right away and and state our ego's opinion, but when mm-hmm. you sit every day in the silence and wait for wisdom to to flow in or to connect with the wisdom that's innately ours at a different level, then we can access that place if we just take the time to open to that space. And now I'm talking for you. Sorry. No, no. I love hearing what you have to say. Absolutely. Please. (laughs) But you were talking about waking up spiritually versus growing up. Where would you – this is the question I told you on the break. I was going to kind of put you on the spot. Sure. If you were to to say where humanity is as an average, if we were to say, you know, are we in the childhood of our development or the teenagerhood or are we mm-hmm. young adults or grown up as far as the two things, spiritually awakening and emotionally developed, where would the mass of humanity fall there? Well, you know, I think... I think humanity is doing pretty well. I mean, people will often say to me, you know, the religious traditions must not be true because look how awful the state of the world is. But when you think about 
you know, that our universe is 13.8 billion years old and our Earth is 4.6 billion years old and human beings as we know them are 200,000 years old. And the great religious traditions are anywhere from 2,500 years to 10,000 years old. My view is we've been learning how to be human beings for a very, very short period of time. And that we move generally from being egocentric and self-centered and all about power. And then all of a sudden we move to being loyal to our group. And then we kind of move out of that and we start seeing ourselves as all of humanity. And then we start seeing ourselves as all life. And my view is that, you know, when you, when you think about this long curve or this very long line of evolution, you know, we're doing great. So I think we're coming along. Um, whether we're more, I think some places in the world, people are, are awake spiritually and maybe a little less emotionally developed in other places. You know, sometimes people are less spiritually awakened. I know one of the things that's happening in the States is that lots of people are leaving or moving out of traditional religious context because they're too limiting, because you have to do everything the way you're told and you don't get to explore or ask your own questions. And then they spend some time kind of out on their own. And, and then they really have a deep longing to return to a deep kind of practice and so they either have to reformulate their relationship to the church or the context that they're from, or they find a new one, or they find, like you have, a spontaneous way to open to spirit. And so people are even growing and changing in their relationship to their spiritual practice. And I think it's really heartening to see how we seem to naturally want to grow. And because of that, I feel positive about where we are, even though I know we're faced with tremendous challenges. Yeah. I... I... I teach a course called Awaken Living, and it's, it's going to be part of my retreat at Unity Village, this this where are we as far as our spiritual awakening. And, and, and a sleep person would be one who doesn't really grasp that there is a greater aspect of us and what this life is all about. And I think we've tipped the scale as, as yeah. humanity, we, that more people now are awakening than asleep. Do you agree? In my world, that's certainly the case. I mean, I'm just kind of amazed by how awake people are and how willing to grow they are. And I also think that the other thing is that we see people really starting to realize that they don't have to create suffering for themselves. You know, these habits of addiction or, you know, negative emotional patterns that create a lot of disharmony in the home and anger. People are learning like, oh, I can now grow this. I can actually heal and learn how to live my life in a way that doesn't create suffering for myself and for others. So I agree. I feel good. I feel hopeful. Yay. This is the Messages of Hope Yay. show, so that's good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, I, I enjoyed watching some of your YouTube videos recently. I wanted to, to see how you share some of this in beyond the one hour I got to perceive of your wonderful presentation at the conference in Salt Lake City. But can you summarize in five minutes the four levels through which we can perceive the world? Because I think people will find it very educational if they un they can kind of see where they are in their development. Yes, yes. And when we talk about development and we talk about growing up, keep in mind it's like thinking about the way in which a child grows. And we don't judge people for where they're at, but we do pay attention to the ways in which we can support people in growing. So the first level is 
um, the level of the egocentric self in which we're, we're quite self-concerned and we, um, we're really kind of about our own survival and our own success. And we may experience quite a lot of stress because as the egocentric self, we haven't discovered that we're not separate yet. We still experience ourselves as quite separate. And where there's separation, there, there's suffering and challenge. So people who are egocentric are self-concerned, but they also tend to suffer more. And it's just important to know that it's uh, uh, not always easy to be a highly egocentric person. And then the next next layer, and this is, you know, developmental theory, you can have four stages, you can have 16, depending on how you break it out. But for four stages, the next stage is called the ethnocentric self. Some people these days refer to it as being tribal. And the ethnocentric self really has to do when our when we've kind of solidified our, our ego, it's, it's stable. And because our ego is stable, we can now identify with our group. And lots of traditional religions have this quality of ethnocentrism. Lots of um, national identity has this. A lot of, you know, if you have a soccer team, you know, that you're really excited about, it's kind of an us and them where all of a sudden you get a lot of sense of belonging and safety and protection from the group. But you also have to conform a lot to the group norms. You know, you have to dress in the way you're supposed to. You have to follow the, the rules. There's uh, values like duty, obedience, and loyalty are very, very important and ethnocentric. And the downside of it, of course, is that if you step outside of those norms, you're exiled from the group. So lots of times people will leave a traditional church because they might discover that they're gay or, you know, it's, it's homophobic or you're not allowed to do that. It used to be in, when I was young, if you got divorced, lots of times you were kind of kicked out of your group. And we know that people will grow and change sometimes when they have been kind of exiled from their ethnocentric home for these kinds of reasons. Somehow they could not quite fit in in the right way, and so they had to leave. We move to the next level then, which is what we call the world-centric self. And there's a big shift in the level of openness for people who are world-centric. And basically, rather than identifying with the group as your primary focus, you now identify with all of humanity. And so we see world-centric people as being very interested in travel. They're interested in differences in culture rather than threatened by them. They like to learn from other people. Sometimes they'll have multiple languages. They become very aware of other life forms at world-centric. The environmental movement is born from a world-centric sensibility. Uh, The women's movement was born from that as well, of course, you know, including... um, you know, all people of color or lots of the, a, lot, a lot of what's going on in the media today regarding race and sexism and those kinds of things is born of world centrism and attempts to include everybody. Now, the downside of being world centric is that we notice the scale and the breadth of problems in the world. So we notice, you know, things like the arms trade or poverty across the globe or um, you know, economic injustice or human trafficking, like the problems at world centric seem so insurmountable. And so what will happen sometimes when someone is at world centric is they, they just get tired or they become full of despair. And then suddenly this we, deeper... We have one, mi- one minute and 30 one seconds. Minute. 
Okay. One minute, 30 seconds. And so then we kind of <laughs> enter into what's called the cosmic centric self. And suddenly we start to see the world from much bigger perspective. And we start to identify with all that is. The mind becomes very quiet. We start, it's very similar to meditation, spaciousness, timelessness, and this trust that the world is unfolding as it should. And as people deepen more and more into this cosmic sense, this cosmic awareness, and suddenly they're positioned very well to be able to help in the world without being full of despair. So these are four different perspectives through which we experience ourselves and others. And these are available to anybody. We can all grow into yes. this, correct? Absolutely. Th- they're in, they're that, in our hearts. That drive. last one, that last one is, is mm-hmm. to be in the world but not of it. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is, to be in the world and not of it. Wow. you have any closing advice for all of us? I wish we could talk to you for hours. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you, Suzanne, because I really value our connection, and I feel really pleased and honored to be able to speak to your your audience and um, our honor my yeah thank you and um just wishing everyone the best and hope that your life and your practice benefits others well we've all benefited from listening to you today diane thank you so much for joining us everybody i hope listen again and again in the archives because there was so much wisdom shared today many blessings to all of you have a great week and we'll see you back here next week Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.